Topic of the day, what shall we do with the church? What shall we do with the church? Belong. What does that word evoke when you hear the word belong? It's such a deep and a primal word that speaks to the deep desires that are built into the human heart all the way back from the beginning. I find it so interesting that we were made to belong and then you hear Jesus say to a man who says, I want to follow you. Jesus says, Matthew 8, 20, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Translation, you sure? You sure you want to follow me? I have no home. Jesus had a unique way of Ignoring what was being presented and hitting past what was being presented to what was actual in the heart of the person asking. I want to follow you. I'll give you everything. Will you? Do you know what this means? Even foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You're going to pay that price? Creation yearns for nests, for Little hidey holes, comfortable spaces that we put our imprint on that we can retreat to and feel safe in and belong. But Jesus, and therefore everyone who makes a journey with Jesus, has to give up this right. He leaves his glory, he leaves his home to go on a mission. Will we? Carrie loves to make her home a little nest wherever she is. And every few years, she gets it in her heart to scurry around and dream and shape things and redecorate, reorganize, and create a comfy, cozy little space to call her own. Yesterday's was this new little shelf. She brought me some brackets and a rough cut piece of lumber. It was too rough for my taste. I had to go sand it off and cut the edges a little bit more square. I was like, really? And I thought, is that bird poop? No, it turned out to be paint. And she didn't even want that cleaned off. Just, just leave it. Well, she did one if it was bird poop cleaned off. But she just, just leave it rough. Don't stain it. Don't sand it. Don't paint it. It's a, there's a look I'm going for. I said, oh, my goodness. So I kind of compromised. She kind of compromised. I put it up on the wall. The next thing you know, plants go up. Pictures go up. And it's under her nice little fold-down couch in our bedroom. And it's a cozy little retreat. She just can't help herself. She's got to make everything cozy. And it does look. Oh, she, yeah, she posted it online. Why are we the way that we are? Why do we? <laughs> I want to share nothing with the world. So funny. Aside, there was a season when I kept showing up on Facebook and I didn't realize I was gonna and I was always shirtless. And I was like, Carrie! She's like, oh, I didn't realize you were in the background of the photo. Why are you never wearing a shirt? And I'm like, it's hot. Now my belly's there for everyone to see. Photoshop me out. What are you doing? I'm in my own house. Why do I have to? Okay, but Carrie loves to make her home into a nest wherever she is and loves the concept of a cozy, safe place where she can weather the storms of life. 
and to willingly lay that down because of the call of Jesus. That's a big deal. It's not just physical homes that we long for, is it? When we say the word belong, it's not just a physical home. It's what we really, really long for more than anything is a relational home. God himself said it's not good for man to be alone. It's core and right and valid, and it is a deep desire built into every human. Now, our initial means of finding this belonging is our family, our earthly biological family. But I think we all know this, due to sin and sin's effects, our biological families, as wonderful as they can be, are usually also a source of much hurt, some lies, and some unfaithfulness. And many families just like fracture completely. They say blood's thicker than water, which means, of course, that your family has your highest loyalty. But Jesus didn't consider his biological family his highest loyalty, did he? When he was informed that they were outside asking for him, he said, who? Who's my mother? And who are my brothers? And then he pointed to the disciples around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother and my sister and my brothers. It's Matthew chapter 12. Well then, we say, our hearts rise up with fresh hope and we say, if our biological family isn't meant to be that home, then maybe the church, the church will be our home, the church. And then we seek out a church where we think we're going to feel loved and safe. It'll be our little cozy, hidey hole. And we attempt to build our nest there. And then we say, ouch! Because we eventually discover that the same truth that was operating in our biological families is operating in our spiritual family. That the church family is, like our natural family, a gift. But an imperfect gift. It's an imperfect gift. Disappointment sets in. I think disappointment comes from unmet expectations. And I think this is one reason, just one, that so many people drift from participation in everyday, ordinary, run-of-the-mill, regular churches. The world is now full, our culture is now full of not pre-Christians, but de-churched, post-Christians. And then it's also full of de-churched Christians. Yeah, I still believe, I just got no use for the church. And I think it comes from, they had such high expectations for what church was going to be in their life. To effectively, this is just a free tip, you get this one for free. To effectively crush people with despair. Would that, that's, if you want to do that, would you like a tip on how to crush people with deep, soul-destroying despair? All right, here's how. First, you have to raise their hopes extremely high. That's how. The higher you raise people's hopes, the deeper you can crush them with despair. And I think part of the reason that we charismatic churches have the most despairing hurt people is because of how much higher charismatic churches raise the hopes of people. It's just a theory I have. 
Because we believe that the power of the Spirit, all the power that raised Jesus from the dead is available now. And we're right, by the way, about that. And this opens up so many possibilities and creates so many expectations. And then when it doesn't happen like we prayed it would happen, the disappointment is far worse than if we thought what we were going to get out of church was some bad singing and a boring sermon, and then we'd give some offering and go to heaven later. So a lot less disappointment with that model. A lot less Jesus in that model, too. Church was going to be my source of life and love. We don't admit it, but it's true. This church, we say angrily, was going to complete me. Which if we would admit, we'd say, well, that's actually idolatry. But still, it's what happens. This church was going to complete me. This church was going to be my source of life and love. And then it just didn't pan out. And in the aftermath, the cynicism with the entire enterprise of church itself. What's the point of even going to any church? Is an alluring suggestion, the evil one whispers in the shoulders. Hey, why bother at all? And we think things like this. Is church really good for anything other than just like pain and social obligations? The answer is, <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's good for a lot more than just those two things. But, I mean, what relationship won't involve pain or any kind of impinging obligation? If you have a relationship that has zero responsibilities, you are an infant. <laughs> Come on. Take, me. Take, take, take. Wah. Me, 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 me. Oh, me, me. Here's two, here's two very true statements. Nobody has hurt me as much as the church. And statement number two, nobody has loved me as well as the church. Now, what do you do with those two? What do you do with those two truths? Well, they're my truths. I don't know if they're yours. Hebrews chapter 11 says that we believers, we live in this world as strangers in a foreign country, as heirs of a promise that we welcome from a distance. It says this, people who say such things show that they're looking for a, a country of their own. They're longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And then it goes on to say, let us then go to him, Jesus, outside the camp. And bear the disgrace that Jesus bore. For here we have no lasting city. You hear it? Can you, can you feel that? We are looking for a city to come. Here we have no lasting city. And yet we say, yeah, yeah, but why not the church though, y'all? Come on. Oh, we say, yeah, I hear you, Hebrews 11, but uh, why can't the church be like a little microcosm of heaven filled with like the joy of heaven, the peace of heaven, the power of heaven, the love of heaven? Why can't we just, I mean, I hear you, Hebrews 11, but I'm just saying. I mean, isn't she at least called to be a little microcosm of heaven, guys? 
Thank you, Janae, for nodding. Yes, she is called to be a little microcosm of heaven. And sometimes she is. John 17, Jesus prays for the church in (laughs) the hardest day of his life. In some ways, I wonder if waiting for them to come arrest him was harder than the actual crucifixion itself. I don't know. But what he said to his disciples the night he gave himself for us involves a prayer that just captures my heart and has for so long now. And it is his prayer, his dream for what the church can and should be. And it seems really far from who the church has been, riddled by strife and fractured by resentments and divisions for 2,000 years now. He said this, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be One, as you and I are one. I and them, and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. This, this, is Jesus' heart for his church. That unity and love among us would make us a window into God. And when I pair that prayer with my experience, I feel baffled. Lord, how, how do we fall so far short and how can we do better? We bite and devour each other sometimes even publicly, doing the work of the devil as the world looks on, shaking their heads in derision, and rightly so. Romans 2.24 says, God's name is blasphemed among the nations because of you. You feel that. And yet, this prayer of Jesus remains. And like Hebrews says, Hey, guys, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. As long as you hear his voice, respond today. Don't respond later. Don't say tomorrow. Respond today. If you hear his voice today, respond today. So today, let's not harden our hearts to this prayer of Jesus. Today, let's not harden our hearts to this call of Jesus. Today, let's not harden our hearts to this dream of Jesus 
for his, his church. But how, right? But how, how? How do we put church in her rightful place in our affections and avoid the cynicism I talked about earlier? That cynicism that just wants to sweep us away, joining those outside the faith who say, <laughs> yeah, right, idiots. Just going to list off some... How many do I have? I, say I have eight things. I'm going to list off as quickly as I can. What shall we do with the church? Number one, pray to see the church the way Jesus sees the church. Return to the truth that despite her many flaws, the church is the single greatest treasure that Jesus has. The single greatest treasure of Jesus is the church. And despite what you and I might think, she is essential. We are essential to his purposes. The church indwelt by Jesus himself is plan A, and there is no plan B. So, number one, ask the Father to give you his love for his church, to view her how he views her, as spelled out in Scripture, as a bride being prepared for the groom. And ask forgiveness for how you've been a part of her flaws. Number two, don't naively expect church to be a pain-free zone. If you count the cost beforehand, then when you're asked to pay the cost later, you don't go, oh, I can't believe it's happening to me. Like, remember how Peter says, why are you so freaked out by this fiery trial? Did you not read the fine print? You signed your name. Huh? I didn't know it was going to be like this. We told you. Repeatedly, we told you it's by many hardships you must enter the kingdom of heaven, that you have to take up your cross and die daily and follow him with integrity. That if they treated him this way, they're going to treat you this way. Were you not in the sermon time? First thing Jesus says to Paul when he calls him is, I will show you how much you must suffer for my name. This is not shocking and outrageous. This is not a bait and switch unless you have a weird false gospel. Hey, come join Jesus. It's going to be real great. There's going to be cookies. Actually, there will be cookies, just to be honest with you about that. But that's the calling, death at work in us so that life can be at work in others. The power of it, the resurrection power is on the other side of sharing in his sufferings. And guess what? He's so much more than worth it. He's so much more than worth it. What you gain is so much better than anything you lose. What you gain in this life is even better than what you lose in this life. But what you gain for eternity is like mind-bogglingly stunning. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure, a treasure buried in a field and in his joy, not in his, oh, I guess if I have to, in his joy, he sells everything he has and gets the field. Why? Because he's about to make such a crazy windfall that everything he just sacrificed isn't even going to be a sacrifice. If you find somebody who's like, oh, hang in there, brother, uh... It's the right thing to do. No, come on, guys. We've, have we lost sight? 
It's not going to be a pain-free zone, but it's totally going to be worth it. Which is my third point. First one was pray to see the church the way Jesus does. Second one is don't expect it to be a pain-free zone. But the third one is, can we learn the, the joy of fellowship with Jesus in the midst of hard things? Jesus tells us that suffering in the path of obedience is our calling. It's how we're formed and shaped into his image. And we're not just called to learn how to surrender to the Father. The kicker is we're, learned to ha- we're, we're called to learn how to surrender to the Father happily. And that happily matters. That happily matters a lot. If I have to, I guess I will. But you got to make me like it. It's my mom when she was little. She refused to drink milk. You know, it's the kid who's like, I will stand up, but I just want you to know I'm still sitting in my heart. (laughs) The writers of the New Testament over and over call us to outlandish joy. They call us to, they tell us over and over, every time they talk about suffering, they tell us to rejoice in the midst of our sufferings. Not because of our sufferings, but in the midst of our sufferings. Why? Because we have the certainty of knowing God is at work in the midst of our sufferings to form us into the image of Christ and to work everything around us for our good and for his glory. He's not saying I might. He's not saying, hey, I'd like to try. He's saying I am already doing it. The plan is already being enacted. Every harmful thing that the enemy has schemed up and that human sin has created, even your missteps in the past, if you just say, I'm sorry, I wish I didn't, he's already redeeming them now. And as we're freed in the midst of these things from the need to be treated a certain way and seeing everyone around us as owing us love, we then can position ourselves to say, you know what, all my love needs are met in Jesus and I'm here to love you. Stop freaking out about what you didn't do for me and start saying, you know what, I have all the love I need in my Jesus and I'm here to manifest love to you. Every pain becomes an opportunity for new life and for deeper joy. Number four, since we know we all will commit sin against each other, let's consider what practices we need to build into our lives to counteract that sin with divine grace. Hebrews 12.15 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness grows up among you defiling many We must not continue to allow the enemy of our souls to sow so much offense and bitterness among us that then reap destruction both in individuals and in community. Instead, like, let's go directly to the person that we have a problem with and resolve it. And when we go, let's be vulnerable instead of attacking. Tell them about how we're feeling. Stop telling them about who they are. Doesn't help. Vulnerable, don't attack. Repent and forgive, don't defend and blame. And when I say forgive, I mean forgive all the way from the heart. Love keeps no record of wrongs. So if we do, something's wrong with us. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Forgive as God in Christ forgave you. 
Oh, okay. Oh, like, like that? Oh, you mean like that? Yeah, I'm going to need some help with that. You got it. I'm here to help. Jesus, Holy Spirit, they're available. This gospel's all about this point. Because if we don't detach from the wrongs done to us, guys, they eat our lunch. They shape and disciple us. They become Lord. Go to the person. Be vulnerable. Don't attack. Forgive from the heart and draw healthy boundaries. Sometimes you forgive them all the way, but you still have to set up a healthy boundary. Because if they don't change their behavior and you don't then change your behavior, it's just like giving money to someone who doesn't take good care of their own money. You're just going to let them now bankrupt your account next. And that can also be true emotionally. Someone who's bankrupted their own emotions with bad choices and stupid beliefs. And if, if you then glom on to them in an unhealthy, undifferentiated way, now their foolishness has bankrupted you emotionally. Healthy boundaries are not a lack of love. Healthy boundaries does not mean that you're like, I don't care what happens to them and I don't just whatever. No, no, no. Healthy boundaries is you knowing the difference between what belongs to your life and what belongs to their life. And sometimes your lack of healthy boundaries is the very thing keeping people stuck in their sin. If you keep bailing somebody out, they never have to hit rock bottom and change. I said too much on that point. Number five, let's renounce ownership of ourselves and our lives. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. When we say yes to Jesus, we lay our rights down to be in charge of our lives, to take ownership of our lives. But that's my heart. But those are my feelings. These are my kids. What are you doing? No, they're not your kids. They're not even your stinking feelings anymore. They're my feelings. It's my heart. It's not your heart. It's not your life anymore. Unless we have a lordship problem. Do we have a lordship problem? Are we going to be having a lordship problem? <laughs> Sounds like a little disciplinarian problem. Hey, listen now. Are we going to be having a lordship problem? And if I'm honest, the answer is yes. My friend Bobby says, uh, our problem is that we kind of think we'd make a better God than God. Yep. Fair enough, Bobby. We lay down the right to be treated fairly when we say yes to Jesus. We, we instead pick up his call to bless and not curse no matter the circumstances. And we recognize that our hope's not in an earthly dwelling or in an earthly group, but in Jesus, who calls us to love those around us no matter what. Take this attitude toward people. I'm just repeating myself from last time. They aren't here to love me. I'm here to love them. All my love needs are met in Jesus. So now I have an opportunity to overflow and present something they might not have a grasp on. Lay down our rights. This perspective requires a realignment of our natural self-centered mindsets. I don't know about you, but I wake up every morning kind of self-centered. Like, like I don't have to tell, I don't have to like coach, I don't have to coach myself to get in the flesh. But I do have to get prayed up to get in the spirit. Isn't that interesting? And I do have to make a choice to be led by the Spirit. But my default setting is like, me, my feelings, my comfort, my pleasure. That's default. Oh, how could he be a pastor? (laughs) 
More importantly, how could he be a Christian? Same way y'all can. Jesus is good. He don't treat us the way we deserve, and he never gives up on us. And once he says, you, me, let's go, and he sees you falling down, he comes right back and he says, okay, all right, let's get you back up. Here we can brush you off. Let's go, boy. Here we go. Round 17. Point six. Repent. <laughs> that doesn't make you laugh like it does me, because I grew up with like the, every sermon had two points. You stink. It was number point, point, point number one. You stink. Point number two. You need to change. <laughs> I'm joking. But point six, repent. Jesus' heart for the church is for the church to radiate unity and love so the world will recognize that he's real and he's Lord. And for that to happen, we need our eyes opened. We need our hearts softened. We need to stop being so sure that I've done it right. I probably haven't done it right. I'd like the Holy Spirit to teach me how to do it his way. His way. And a repentant heart is a heart that says, teach me, show me. I'm yours. I have so much that I want to learn from you. I have so much I want to grow into, Jesus. Jesus wants to save Christians. Not not those Christians over there in that other church, by the way. And And not these Christians here in front of me. No, no, this Christian. Me. Jesus wants to save me. Do you still feel that? Or are you still stuck in pride thinking, if everyone else were like me, the world would be awesome? If I could just have more me everywhere. We kind of feel that way, don't we? I can't believe they don't do it the way I do it. Idiots. You don't vote like me, think like me, drive like me, dress like me, listen to music like me? Oh, you poor thing. Me, 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 me. Repent. Jesus wants to save me from me. Me is more dangerous than the devil ever was. (laughs) That just made me happy saying that. I've sinned. I need to change. I need a softer heart. I need more love. I need grace and strength to do what I have left undone and to stop doing what I did but I shouldn't have. Number seven, love is the goal. Let's make love our goal. Love our goal. Love, love, love. Let's realize that we love God as much as the person we love the least. First John says, if you don't love your brother whom you have seen, how can you actually think that you really love the God who you have not seen? But there's his image right in front of you, and you don't love that image in front of you, but you fooled yourself into thinking that you love because you go to church and you pray and you think of yourself a certain way. So now, in order to preserve the belief that you are, in fact, a good and loving person, you have to demonize that person that provoked your lack of love response so that you feel justified in not loving that thing that God's called you to love. Right? But if we're able, 
And I think it's a, it's a long shot. It's really hard. It takes, it takes a miracle. It takes a miracle to get people who are super devoted to the Lord to admit, yeah, I really don't love that dude. You talk to pagans and they're like, I hate that guy. And I'm like, whew, that's refreshing. If it was a Christian, they'd be like, of course I love him with the love of the Lord. I've been praying for him. There's no unforgiveness there. Just real concerned about him. Talk to a pagan and he's like, I hate that guy. That guy's a piece of crap. And you go, wow. Probably easier to get this person to switch over to love than this other person who thinks they already are in a place of love. Because all this person has to do is go, oh, maybe he ain't such a jerk. Or maybe even if he was, I'm allowed to forgive him. But over here, this guy's like, repent? Who, me? How dare you? Haven't you heard a thing I said about them? Yeah, we ain't talking about them, bro. Talking about you. We need the Holy Spirit to cut under those self-justifications because how do we grow in love when we actually have fooled ourselves into thinking we love people we hate? Well, well, of course I don't like him, but I love him. You moron. You can't love somebody you don't like. That's the whole point. It's more important what you like. I don't like them, but I love them. Have you ever noticed how when you really love somebody, you start to like them too? Oh, self-justifications are so annoying. I mean, I love him with the love of the Lord, but he just annoys the living crap out of me. I want to smack him. You don't love him then. Okay. So let's, let's ask the Holy Spirit, God, show me what's true about my lack of love for people. If y'all in here, raise your hand and said, I absolutely love every single human on the planet completely the way I'm called to. I'd be like, oh, good Lord, have mercy on us. We're in trouble. I guess you're perfect. I will freely admit there's some folk I don't even like because I need more love and I'm not near enough like Jesus yet. But what's the solution to that problem, guys? Lie about it to myself? Or is the solution more Jesus? Yes. I stayed on that point a long time because it's pretty important. Point eight, last point. Commit to be willing to lay your life down for his bride. Because Jesus did. And Paul, following Jesus, he did. Peter did. You know all the apostles were killed. And we go, yeah, but they were killed for their faith in the Lord Jesus. You cannot detach their faith in the Lord Jesus for the fact that they gave their lives to serve his bride. If they had not given their lives to serve his bride, they could have hid out in the wilderness in a monastery praying and they wouldn't have had many troubles. You, you feel that. They could have just said, meh, I just serve Jesus. If you love Jesus, then you'll do what he does and you'll love who he loves and you'll be sent to the people he's most aching to reach. You and I have the privilege of spending our one short little lives, spending it, investing it, and throwing it away on something that seems to be a radical waste of a life if this whole gospel turns out to not be true. Your life should look so dumb if Jesus ends up not being real. 
It should be like leaned so hard that if he's not real, the whole thing falls flat and you go, what a waste. There's folk that are like, you know, if God ends up not being true, I mean, I've just, I've, then I've still at least had a, a rich life. Paul says, if Christ isn't raised, then we're to be pitied more than all other men. That's not the same logic, is it? I had a friend once say to me who actually used to attend here, he said, hey man, if, if Christianity turns out to not be true, then at least I've, I've had a full life of love and I've enjoyed my time loving people well. I don't think you're doing it right then. Paul's saying, if he isn't raised, then we're to be pitied more than all other people. And you're saying, if he isn't raised, it was still fun. I don't think you're doing it right. Commit to being willing to lay your life down for his bride. The price may be high, but the payoff even higher. I always like to joke when I ask people to join me in ministry, saying silly things like, hey, don't pay too good, but the retirement package is pretty nice. <laughs> I said that to Mark, I said that to Mark Yoder. I said, well, the pay ain't too good. And then he reached into his, wallet, his, his pocket and gave me 40 bucks and said, buy your family pizza. And I was like, Didn't see that one coming. <laughs> We're pretty much done. Three questions instead of a sermon ending with a prayer. I'm just going to end with these three questions. How do you feel about the church? How do you feel about the church? Question two out of three. How does Jesus feel about the church? Final question. How do you think Jesus feels about how you feel about the church?